Levi Brackman here with Truths, Jewish Wisdom for today. Thank you so much for joining once again. This is a brand new year. Rosh Hashanah was last week, and in the Jewish calendar, we're in year 5784. I would like to, before I get going, to ask you if you like this podcast, again, please subscribe, like it wherever you see your podcast, leave a review, comment, etc. This helps it gain visibility so other people can also find the podcast. What I want to talk about today is the Kabbalah up until Lurianic times. This is the final episode that I'm going to be talking about until we actually delve into the Kabbalah of Rabbi Isaac Luria, Lurianic Kabbalah, the Kabbalah of the Ari. Today, what I want to do is a brief overview in history of Kabbalah up until that point, including an overview of the magnum opus of Kabbalah, the Zohar itself. You have the emergence of what has been shown now as a very ancient text called the Sefer Yitzirah, or the Book of Formation. And this is a really a numeric type book which seems to have within it the secrets of how the world came into being using numbers as well as the letters and you have the word sphira which actually later on in Kabbalistic terms means something different but in this book it means to count and the different counting of the different letters, the Hebrew letters of the alphabet that is, underlie the secret to how all things came into being and how things were formed. There is a law which says that through the secrets found in the Sefi Yitzirah, one can actually create a golem, which is a type of being which is formed out of clay and um, then comes to life. And so this is an ancient book full of mythology and theurgy. In other words, being able to manipulate the underlying divine energies of creation and if you have the secret numerics from the Hebrew uh, letters and Hebrew alphabet, you can do that. It's a very s small book and is full of these abstract teachings. And there were many different commentaries on this book, especially in the Middle Ages. Tradition has it that this book, the Sefer Yetzirah, was authored by Abraham, the forefather of in the Bible. Other uh, scholars actually think that it's still an ancient book, maybe not written by Abraham, but written in the second century. So this is, by all accounts, an ancient book and was studied in the 12th century in Provence, and there were uh, Kabbalists working on it and writing commentaries on it in southern France at that time. There is another mystical text as well called the Sefer Bahir, or the Book of Clarity, and that book was also uh, one which was studied, and that, according to uh, tradition, was written by a Tana, someone from the time of the Mishnah, by Nechunia ben Hakana, and again, that is a highly mystical text and was studied by Kabbalists at that time, and some people think that it actually was written later, but the fact is that these are Kabbalistic-type texts, very mystical texts which exist within the Jewish tradition. Now, as I mentioned in previous episodes, that a lot of the study of the Kabbalah and this Jewish mysticism and then the writing of it in plain sight happened 
in the 1200s, late 1200s, and is seen by many scholars as a reaction to the philosophization of Judaism by people like Maimonides. So here you have Kabbalists talking about these ideas and studying them and writing about them and writing commentaries on these esoteric texts and allowing people to study them and perhaps that which was studied more in code and more in secret between scholars is now something which is starting to see the light of day amongst scholars and more publicly as well. One of the most well-known Kabbalists of that time in Spain was Nachmanides. Nachmanides lived from 1194 to 1270, and he was a halachist, and he was also a commentator on the Torah, and he wrote a very well-studied, till this day, commentary on the Torah, and in it there are Kabbalistic teachings, sparse, but some of them relatively long, but Nachmanides, or the Ramban, Ramosha ben Nachman, was a person who was openly writing Kabbalistic ideas, and he also opposed certain ideas of philosophy that were found from Maimonides as well. So that was the Kabbalistic school that existed in Catalonia in the 1200s, Nachmanides and various other Kabbalistic scholars. But then you had another emergence of Kabbalah found in Castile, and you had a different group of Kabbalists who were very active in writing over there and used a lot of mythology in their writings. And from that emerged this text known as the Zohar. Moshe de Leon, or his Hebrew name was Moshe ben Yomtev, was responsible for the emergence of the Zohar. And he lived from 1240 to 1305. And the Zohar text started to be published in small pamphlets over time. And it was maintained by Moshe de Leon that this was a very ancient text and was written in the Tanaitic times in the second century and was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. For this episode of the podcast, I'm not going to get into the authorship of the Zohar and whether it was in fact written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai or not. I will have a separate episode on that. But for now, we want to talk a little bit about what the Zohar was, what its content is, what its style is, and where it fits in the Kabbalah and how Lurianic Kabbalah then emerged from it. So the Zohar, first of all, is not written in Hebrew. It is written in Aramaic. So it is written in the language that apparently was uh, spoken back in the second century. What's really interesting is that Rabbi Shimba Yochai and his teachings, which are found in the Mishnah, are actually all in Hebrew and not in Aramaic. Whereas the Talmud itself, which was written later than the Mishnah and was redacted by Ravina and Ravashi and his group of scholars, was in Aramaic. So, interestingly, although it's considered to be a second century text by tradition, and although most scholars don't believe that that's when it was written, it's in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. The other thing about it is that the Zohar itself is really written in many ways as a commentary on the Torah. But the way it's presented is that you have these group of scholars, the head of the group of scholars was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Elazar. Now it's just important to understand these 
characters, Roshimah Yochai and his son Eloza, that the story is found in the Talmud about them, that Shimmer Yochai spoke negatively against the Roman government at the time, and the Roman government wanted to kill him, as the Roman government did to some of the other Tanaim, which spoke against the Romans and the Roman government. And therefore, he ran into hiding with his son, Eloza, and they spent 13 years in the cave together where they studied Torah. And there's a story that when he came out, he was so spiritual and he had reached such a high level of spirituality that whatever he looked at, which was negative, he burnt, etc. So there's this mythology around Meshim Reichai who was able to achieve these tremendous spiritual heights. So he was a person who, according to even the Talmud, seemed to know a tremendous amount of deep mystical teachings and knowledge of the Torah. So you find that this is presented as teachings which were spoken by Rabbi Shimba Yochai, his son, uh, Rabbi Elaza, and all their group. So the way the uh, format of the Zohar is that one of them starts and uh, speaks and expounds on a verse in the Torah and opens it up. And what it means, he opens it up to the inner secret meanings of the Torah. And that is what is expounded upon in the Zohar. And the Zohar touches upon many different types of, of topics from the creation of the universe. It talks about the Sfirot. It talks about piety and the life of a tzaddik. It talks about uh, the redemption, and it contains a lot of the mystical and inner, supposedly the secrets of the Torah. What I want to focus on right now is the creation and the Sefirot themselves, and also uh, some of the unifications about the Sefirot and the Shekhinah and the feminine aspect of the divine. So these are all things that I wanted to talk about to give a little bit of a flavor of what the Zohar is. But just to say that the Zohar is not a systematic work. As a matter of fact, it seems to be written in such a way that it's very hard to decipher any kind of system from it. So when I read the Zohar, because I've already studied some of the Lurianic Kabbalah, and therefore I already can decipher what it's trying to say. But if you take the Zohar and read it cold, without having read any of the systemizations of the Zohar, it is a very difficult work to understand. And you don't really know what the different passages and the different ideas are referring to, so it all seems to be very esoteric and very difficult to understand what's going on. There were people who spent a huge amount of time and effort, including by Isaac Luria and his student, Chaim Vital, who studied the Zohar and were able to make some kind of system out of it, which now we can look back at and say, yes, okay, I understand what this refers to, I understand what that refers to. It takes someone who has really studied the entirety of the Zohar, really thought about it, put the pieces together in their own head to be able to create the system and explain how it all works. Now you can look back and see what the Zohar is actually saying. But if you haven't done that, then the Zohar is a very, very difficult book to read and understand indeed. So to go, therefore, through some of the ideas which are found in the Zohar, we spoke about the Sfirot, which is in the Sefi Yitzira itself, the Book of Formation. That means the counting, the counting of the different letters, etc. But 
in the Zohar, it takes on an entirely different meaning. These sfirata, these different aspects, if you like, all these different emanations, all these different attributes of the divine that exist in the Godhead, and there are 10 of them. And there are also these different worlds that exist that the Zohar talks about. So these things emanate from God, and the Zohar talks a lot about this emanation, how the creation is not the idea of a physical world that is created, but rather an emergence from the divine, from the ensof, from the infinite light. This emanates these different attributes, these sfirot, which come into being, and the different worlds that come into being from within God, emergence, emanation of these aspects, attributes of God, these sefirot. There are some people who like to argue that really there's no really good translation of the word sfira into English, but because the sefirot are given different names, chokhmah and bina and tiferet and din and chesed, kindness, wisdom, understanding and beauty and severity these really are therefore attributes they are some kind of either you might call them intellects or emotions etc but these are the given names to these different uh, aspects so there are aspects or attributes emanations however you want to call it and that's how therefore they're called but therefore we can give them descriptive terms because uh, they're actually told us what they are these all exist from the divine. Now, you also have this idea of Yichudim, right? Or Zivugim, actually, found in the Zohar. And Zivugim is really the idea of a union or a cohabitation between these different pairings. Pairings of these different Svirat. And then you also have a Svirat of Malchut, which is kingship, which is also the Shekhinah, which is the feminine aspect of the divine and then you also have the right and the left and one is the masculine aspect and one is the feminine aspect of the divine and ultimately you have the union of which is the divine presence itself the holy one blessed be he and his shechina and his divine presence and that is the feminine so this idea of the zivugim or the the union and the cohabitation of the feminine aspect of the divine with the masculine aspect of the divine and the idea of doing the mitzvot etc is in order to bring about this union of the masculine and the feminine of the divine there is a lot of sexual imagery which is found in the kabbalah and i want to focus on that just a little bit of that uh, you have this idea of the feminine which is found in the Kabbalah. According to Arthur Green in his book, A Guide to the Zohar, which is an introduction to the Matt translation of the Zohar, he sees this as a significant Christian influence in the Zohar. Of course, he takes it for granted that the Zohar was a book which was written in the 1300s by uh, Moshe de Leon and perhaps a group of Kabbalistic scholars that lived in Castile in the 1300s. And he doesn't see it as an ancient text. And he sees this idea of the feminine and the divine being a Christian influence where the Christians had Mary as the mother of the Christ, etc. And that feminine influence on the outside, if you like, of God. Whereas within Kabbalah, you have the feminine influence within God 
itself. And part of his argument, which I don't necessarily buy it 100%, but I thought I would say it here anyway, is that if you only had a masculine idea of God, and there was no feminine aspect of God, and then you had the Kabbalist himself uniting with God as another masculine, that would be strange for a male to want to unite with something else which is male. So when you put the feminine in there, and then you have this yearning for basking in God's divine presence in the Shekhinah, that is yearning for that feminine energy that felt much more natural to the male Kabbalist than him yearning for the union with the masculine and the male aspect of God. So that's part of an argument which he makes, which one may or may not buy, but I think it's uh, it's an interesting idea. But definitely the idea here is to create through divine worship down here in, in this world and through kavanot, through these divine intentions, it, it is in order to bring about this zivug, this union of kuchubrichu ushchinte, the if you like, these various other aspects of God, the masculine aspects of God with the feminine aspects of God, which is the Shekhinah, and that union therefore causes then this divine grace or divine light and energy which then comes down and is bestowed upon the person who's having the Kavanot or the, the Kabbalist down below and brings the divine energy into this universe. As a matter of fact, just became from Rosh Hashanah, there's a tremendous amount of literature about what happens in Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the idea of Binyana Malchut, you're this femininity of God, you're actually building it up so that it wants to give birth, if you like, to the worlds and continue to giving its love and bestowing its love and energy in the universe. So the whole idea of one's work on Rosh Hashanah, in many ways, according to the Kabbalists, is to bring down the masculine energy so that it is actively penetrated, to use that term, within the feminine, within the Malchut, and then brings the, from the Malchut then the emergence of energy if you like, it becomes pregnant with energy and then that emerges down here and then you have this energy which continues to spread into the world for the entire year and that brings in all blessings for the next year. And that is part of what the Kabbalists will try and influence to happen within the divine on Rosh Hashanah, on the Jewish New Year. So there's so much sexual imagery and, and sexual union, if you like, which is spoken about and taught within the Kabbalah and from the Zohar itself. What's also really interesting is that the Zohar is very, very strict about any kind of sexual behavior which is not within the context of relationship between a man and his wife, a man and his wife who he has actually done kiddushin with, a person who he has now had this sanctified marriage relationship with, and that is considered to be a holy union in many ways, that which mirrors the divine union of of the masculine and feminine aspects of the divine, and that is very much encouraged. However, any other type of sexual activity, including solo sexual activity, masturbation, is considered to be very, very prohibited. As a matter of fact, the Kabbalists see that kind of activity as almost something which is irreparable. And certainly 
any kind of other sexual activity that takes place outside of the context of marriage is considered to be incredibly detrimental. When one sees uh, this in the context of what the Kabbalah is really uh, doing, which is it's all about these holy unions which are created in the Godhead, and therefore when it's done in the appropriate way, it creates tremendous abundance of divine energy, uh, and that's what one's supposed to achieve. Any kind of uh, sexual output, if you like, which is not in that context and does not mirror that holy union of Kutshubricho and Vushchinte, of the Holy One, blessed be He, which is the masculine aspect, and then Hushchinte and his divine presence, which is a feminine aspect, then creates other types of energies which are very negative energies in the universe. So it's still kind of in a theurgic sense might create negative unions which are not wanted and then create these much more negative energies as a result. And so therefore, the, the Zohar has a very dim view, to say the least, Maybe that's a gross understatement of any kind of sexual activity which is not in line with that holy sexual activity in the context of Kiddushin, that holiness of the marriage and union between a man and his wife in that context of Kiddushin, holy marriage union that takes place and is sanctified by the laws of Moses and Israel, in other words, the halacha, that kind of context of sexual activity is considered, and obviously, if the woman is not impure, is not nida at that time, then that is considered to be positive sexual union, which is encouraged, but anything else is deemed very, very negative by the Zohar. So really very fascinating how there's a real sexualization of the religion in a major way in the eyes of the Zohar. Now to get a little bit more into the Sfirot themselves, so you have 10 Sfirot, and they are Keter, which is, means crown, and then you have Chochman Bina, which is wisdom and understanding. Chochman Bina, wisdom and understanding, is also called Abba Ve'ima, father and mother. So you have the feminine and the masculine. Chokhmah is this first idea of wisdom, first thought which comes to your head. Bina is the great understanding of it. Again, in a sense, you have the Abba and Ima, father and mother, and you have the sperm, which is that first initial inspiration, and then you have the womb where that gets cultivated and great understanding happens. So that, again, you have that masculine femininity going on. So you have Keta, the crown, which is also the divine will. So, Keta, Chochmah, Bina, wisdom and understanding, that's three. Chesed and Din, which is kindness and judgment, which is another two. And then Tferet, which is beauty. And so, that's now we have six. So, Keta, Chochmah, Bina. And then you have Chesed and Din and Tferet. And then you have Netzach, Hod, and Yesod. Netzach, which means victory, Hod, which means splendor, and Yesod, which is foundation. And then you have below that, you have Malchut, which is kingdom, which is also called Shechina, which is a feminine aspect as well. So you have the first triad, which is group of three, which is Keta, Chochmambina. Then the next one is the second triad, Chesed, Din, and Tiferet, which is kindness and severity and then a beauty, and then Netzach, Hod, and Yesod, which is 
Victory, Splendor, and Foundation. And at the bottom, you have the final one, which is Malchut. So you have three, 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 and one. And Malchut, it says, Let la migame klum. It doesn't have anything of its own. It's just a reflection of the others. It takes in the energy of the others, synthesizes it so that it can create the next level. So that is really what you have. And also you have within that masculinity, you have femininity. You have on the right hand, which is the, which, so you have a triad, top, and then two. And then you have another two and one at the bottom, and then another two and then one in the middle, and then one at the bottom of that which is Malchut at the bottom. So you have a right hand and a left hand and then a middle one, and the left hand is feminine. So again, Bina, which is understanding, that is feminine. You have Din, which is a severity, which is feminine. And then you have Hod, which is splendor, which is feminine. And then you have also Malchut, which is the, the ultimate of femininity. So within the masculine, you also have feminine, and then you have feminine itself at the bottom, so which is Malchut. So these are the 10 Sfirot. We will talk when we get into Lurianic Kabbalah in much greater detail about it, but these all are found in the Zohar itself, and the Zohar expounds upon these different elements, aspects, attributes, Sfirot which are found in the divine. And as I mentioned, the unification of the malchut, which is at the bottom, which is called also shechina, is what you're looking to actually achieve in order that it can become pregnated, if you like, and then it can create on and move on and go further. So that is really, in a nutshell, a little bit of an idea of what you find in the Zohar itself. There's obviously much, much more to it than that. To, to summarize, though, it is a book which is really difficult to decipher. A lot of my ability to decipher these ideas are because I studied the commentaries on it, specifically Lurianic Kabbalah, and therefore you can look back and say, oh, that means this and that means that. But if you just read it cold, it's a very, very difficult text to decipher. It's also written in this kind of Aramaic, which is more difficult to understand than just plain Hebrew. It's a different Aramaic than the Aramaic, which is found in the Talmud. We'll have J.J. Kimchi, who I'll interview, uh, and we'll talk about the Zohar and its language and the different aspects of it and its authorship in greater detail. But I wanted to give you a flavor of what is found in the Zohar because that will help us uh, as we get more into Lurianic Kabbalah and what Lurianic Kabbalah does to systemize this in a more intelligent way so that we understand what uh, the Zohar is actually doing here. The Zohar is, I might add, a very important book and text in Judaism. A lot of the ideas and practices which have found their way into Judaism today, including the hypersensitivity to aspects of purity and uh, being very careful about different aspects of sexuality and uh, any kind of... Uh, Thoughts about sexuality which aren't pure are considered to be very negative in Judaism. A lot of that comes through from the Kabbalah itself. If you look at the text of the Talmud and certainly the Bible itself, yes, there are prohibitions against sexual impropriety, etc., but uh, it's one of many prohibitions. For example, not cheating in business is also considered to be very negative, and a lot of the prophets talk very passionately against people who behave in a corrupt way and, and not just in a sexually corrupt way. And it seems like from the Zohar, it really made a very strong focus 
on how bad any kind of sexual impropriety is compared to all the other improprieties that can exist within religion. And because of that, you have a, a orthodox religion today, which is very influenced by the Zohar, which creates a, a religion which is very, very super hypersensitive to any kind of sexual type of impropriety and it creates a very prudish community where you end up with men and women are segregated etc and that all is very heavily influenced by the zohar and uh, there's not so much evidence of that in existence in the time of the talmud and it's certainly not in the time of the bible itself so it's really very important book it influenced judaism in a major way it, in, one could argue that it changed Judaism irreversibly from when it emerged in the 1300s and it was taken very seriously and a lot of its ideas were then integrated into halacha and into Jewish practice and into the Jewish psyche and therefore it's an incredibly important book within the development of the Jewish religion and how Jewish religion is practiced today. And therefore it's important that we know it and understand it. It also is a book which, if you study, and especially through the Lurianic lens, can bring one to a deep sensitivity to the divine as well for those people who practice it. But certainly a very fascinating and interesting book and one which uh, is worthy of our studying and learning. And that is enough for this uh, podcast about the Zohar itself because this series is about the Rianic Kabbalah. So from now on, we're going to delve into how Rabbi Isaac Luria, especially through the eyes of his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, saw the Kabbalah and his teachings. And we're going to get into great detail. First, we're going to talk about the Tzimtzum or the contraction of the light. Then we're going to talk about the emergence of the Sfirot through this uh, thing called the contraction, the Tzimtzum. And then we're going to get into the Sfirot and how they emerged and how they interacted with each other and all of that to come as we get much more into Lurianic Kabbalah. But for now, this has been the the intro or the overview of the Zohar and uh, I look forward to the next section of it with you. Meanwhile, this has been Navy Brackman with Truths Jewish Wisdom for today. Thank you so much for joining and until next time.